Why does Lent begin with this wilderness temptation story with Jesus? Every year when Lent begins, it starts with this story, the first Sunday of Lent, Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. The difficulty is this season of Lent that is full of penitence and fasting and discipline and adding things and taking things away, all of the busyness of, of, of getting these disciplines together in Lent can sometimes be confusing and we can miss the real points of Lent. It's a little bit like Maurice who walks into a bar in Montreal and Maurice sits at the bar and he orders three pints of Molson Canadian beer. One, two, three. And he starts sipping from each one of them. And the bartender is confused and says, you know, just so you know, when I pull the beer, it starts going flat right away. I can pull you one at a time. He says, no, 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 this, this is important. I am one of three brothers. And when we went our way in the world, we decided that every time we would go to a pub, this is how we drink to remember each other. One, two, three. Well, Maurice likes the bar and he becomes a regular. He comes every day and he's ordering his three pints. And then one day, Maurice walks in and only orders two pints. The bartender thinks, oh no, something's happened to one of the three brothers. So he pours the two pints and he says, Maurice, I my condolences for whatever happened to one of your brothers. He says, oh, no, they're all fine. You see, I have given up drinking beer for Lent. <laughs> it took a while to get there, but it was worth it, right? Yeah. We get confused about what Lent's really about. But behind all of the disciplines, behind the fasting and the penitence and the study of scripture and the almsgiving and the taking things out of our life and adding disciplines in. Behind it all, Lent is ultimately about standing against temptation. And if you will hear it this morning, even further, not just standing against temptation, but treading down the tempter himself. See, the reason that Jesus has this wilderness temptation story. The reason it's recorded and the reason that this is read at the beginning of every Lenten season is because Lent is about standing against temptation, treading down that tempter. And here's what we see in the wilderness temptation. We look at this story together today. We see three things that empower us and strengthen us as we try to live into this. We see Jesus, first of all, in the wilderness, decloaking the devil. Decloaking, like he unveils the devil. He reveals the devil. But not only does he reveal the devil and decloak him, but he decodes the devil. He shows us actually what's behind the enemy's strategy. But he doesn't just decloak and decode the devil. But Jesus in this wilderness story dethrones the devil. See, it begins with Jesus in this wilderness story. If you're, if you're with me here in Mark, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, in your Bibles, pew Bibles, on your handheld devices, Matthew 1, verse 1, Jesus' wilderness temptation is about the devil being decloaked. It, it begins in verse 1, we're told that the Holy Spirit 
led Jesus into the wilderness. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, which means, and, and it's interesting, in Mark's gospel, they actually go further and say he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, which means this is no accident. This is a divine appointment. This is supposed to happen. And if you can hear it this morning, this is for you and me and our salvation. This is why he is driven into the wilderness. And when he's there, verse 3 tells us, that the tempter came. And right there is where secular modern people go, hold on, do you mean like a person, the tempter, a personified being, you know, evil personified? Is that what you're suggesting? That there's actually like a devil that shows up there in the desert. See, the, the challenge we have in our secular modern world is we've, we've demystified the world. We've de-supernaturalized the world. We've disenchanted the world we live in. Everything's rational and measurable. And there seems no room for the boogeyman, for the devil. It seems rather medieval. It seems small-minded to talk about the devil. The 1995 film, The Usual Suspects, popularized the famous Charles Baudelaire quote that said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. See, it's not just outside in the secular world that struggles with this idea of personified evil, of the person of the devil. It happens right inside the church as well. Just a few years ago, the Church of England decided, as they updated the baptismal liturgy, to pull out the renunciation of the devil from the baptismal liturgy. In liberal arrogance, the Church of England said, oh, you know, we don't really want to, you know, have the devil renounce the baptism. We'll use a more generic sort of, you know, systemic evil will be renounced. Right? Even the church is uncomfortable with talking about the devil in some quarters. I like how one British journalist wrote this when this happened. Uh, he wrote this. He said, sources close to hell report that the devil is pleased the devil's pleased that he's no longer mentioned by name. Uh, he accepts that he's a controversial figure, but being singled out at every single baptismal service like that was rather hurtful. <laughs> but here's the problem. Even as uncomfortable as modern seculars can be about this concept of the devil, the truth is we see his work all the time. We see evidence of his work. We, we sense at times even his presence. We, we look upon our own lives and the lives of individuals and even the lives of nations and at times say, there does seem to be in this world a real personified evil that's a malign presence, a malignant presence seeking to undo this world. And the problem is our secular world doesn't give us any vocabulary anymore to speak about what we're sensing. And that's why we need the wilderness temptation story because the Bible gives a name to that force, to that presence that we all sense. He's called the devil, Satan, Lucifer, the accuser, the father of lies. And as we unpack this story, he is decloaked for us. Jesus is putting on display the fact that the devil is real. As Henry Arambi, the retired Archbishop of Uganda, once wrote, he said, one of the most dangerous threats to the church in America is that we have ceased to believe in the devil 
and therefore have become blind to his threats. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter, writing to the early church, says that we are to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Jesus' wilderness temptation begins by decloaking the devil. He's real, and we know it, and Jesus helps us name it. But he doesn't just decloak it, then he decodes the devil. See, he decodes, he gets inside and cracks the code. The effect of code breaking during wartime is a staggering effect. A few years ago, the, the film The Imitation Game came out, which looked at Alan Turing and, and the, the team of mathematicians that helped break the Enigma code during World War II. The, 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 the Enigma machines, which would code messages between German U-boats. And their ability to crack that code in conservative estimates figures that it cut two years off, the world, off World War II, saved 14 million lives. And I personally uh, live within that statistic because my grandfather fought in the Battle of the Atlantic and came home. And I really wonder, would I be here had they not broken the code? You see, the code breaking is what Jesus is doing here. He's breaking the devil's code. He's uncovering the temptation behind every temptation. What is the real temptation behind every temptation? Well, we'll find, we find it out in the text when we look at how Jesus responds to each temptation with Scripture. When you see where Jesus is pulling all of these Scripture quotes from, suddenly we begin to understand, okay, here's the code. We know really what's underneath all this. So the first, the first temptation, the temptation to make bread out of stones. Jesus says in verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. The next temptation about throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple, verse 7, Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Third temptation about achieving all the power and authority in the world. Basically, let's bypass the cross and just give you the whole world now, Jesus. And his response to that is, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Now, what's the big deal about the fact that he's quoting from Deuteronomy? It's this. Deuteronomy is Moses' last speech over Israel. Just before they're about to come out of 40 years in the wilderness. 40, wilderness, sounds like a similar story, doesn't it? Yes, and here's the whole point of Moses' entire message in Deuteronomy. You can sum up Deuteronomy basically in one verse. So when you get there in your Bible reading plan, you can be like, hey, I just need to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, and then I can skip on. No, you can't skip on, but you know what I'm saying. This is the central verse of Deuteronomy. It's, this is what it's all about. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. And you shall remember, Israel, the way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness 
that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. The whole point of the wilderness wandering, the whole message of Deuteronomy is God has been testing your hearts to see whether you will trust him and obey. It's all about trust. See, again and again, when you look at the temptations in your life, the devil is always truly tempting you beneath whatever that surface temptation is with the question, will you really trust God? With whatever you're going through, will you really trust God now? We've got a course starting this Wednesday that Father Jonathan is teaching called Glittering Vices. It's looking at the seven deadly sins. So if you really want to dig in to the seven deadly sins, Father Jonathan's going to do that with you. But here's the thing. Even underneath every one of those sins and under every temptation is ultimately that same question. Will you trust God? Or will you take matters into your own hands? See, this is what Jesus is decoding for us. He's helping us understand the strategy beneath. When we come to times of trial, we are being tested. Our hearts are being tested to see, will we in fact trust God even in this? Our second oldest daughter was born in the north. Now, I don't mean Canada north. I mean the north of Canada, up near the Alaska border. She was born in a small cottage hospital, and she was born sick. Her breathing rate was way too fast. Her heart rate was way too fast, and everyone was worried. And I began to worry that we were in the wrong hospital, and we didn't have the right doctors. And after 36 hours of this, we're sitting in the neonatal unit, and Monica's rocking our newborn 36-hour baby, old baby, and in my head, all I'm saying is, we got to get out of here. We need a new hospital. We need a new doctor. I'm going to sue the administration. Like, I'm just going through all this in my head, trying to fix it, trying to be the dad and take control of this situation. And I'll tell you, this time, one of the few times in my life that I think I've heard what is closest to an audible voice in my head, I heard these words, you don't need another doctor. You need me. And suddenly the words of Psalm 20, verse 7, immediately came into my mind. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. But our trust is in the name of the Lord our God. This is the test. This is the temptation behind every temptation. Will we still trust God even in this moment? Everything the devil does is decoded when you realize that whatever that thing is that's grabbing a hold of you is ultimately about you trusting God. But thanks be to God, Jesus doesn't leave us there. See, if, if, if we were done now, if the wilderness temptation decloaked Satan, like, hey, Satan's real, and then decoded Satan, said it's always going to be about trying to pull you away from trust in God. And that was it. We'd be left in absolute misery and fear. But thanks be to God, in the wilderness, in the wilderness temptation, not only does Jesus decloak Satan, not only does he decode Satan, but he dethrones Satan before our eyes. See, in verse 10, there's those wonderful words from Jesus. Be gone, Satan. 
And it's not kind of like the episode is over, like, we'll catch you later, Satan. No, he is expelling Satan. He is exercising Satan. He is sending Satan running and packing. Because what has happened in the wilderness temptation is in fact a victory for Jesus over the power of the devil. Let's be clear. He really was tempted. Don't ever read the wilderness temptation or any part of Jesus' life and think, oh, he's actually Superman and he's just put on the charade that he's hungry. You know, he's the son of God. No, Philippians chapter two tells us that he, full God, second person of the Trinity, but emptied himself in order to be still fully God, yet fully man. Verse two says he was hungry and he was. And yet, as Satan tempted him, as Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 says, we have one who can associate, understand, and has been tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. And, and friends, this has never happened before up to this moment. No one has ever, since the Garden of Eden, gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan and completely won. From the moment that serpent came into the garden, Adam and Eve fell, and every human being has fallen to his temptations again and again and again until this moments as he comes into as Jesus goes into this wilderness temptation and stands against the devil the first person in the history of humanity can stand up against the tempter and win see Satan was trying to convince the world that he's in charge. That's constantly what he's trying to convince the world of. So much so that Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 describes Satan and his armies this way. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan has positioned himself through the history of humanity as the one who truly is on the throne and in control and has authority. And then this wilderness temptation happens and suddenly Jesus kicks him off that usurped throne. You are not in charge of this world. You are not the ruler. You are not the one that will have the final word. And we see evidence of this in Matthew chapter 12. Like you see the evidence of this victory in Matthew chapter 12. We see it everywhere in the Gospels, but in Matthew chapter 12, it's so clear. Because in verse 22, Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 22, meets a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute. And he's brought to Jesus and Jesus heals him. He exercises the demon. And the Pharisees lose it. They say, ah, see, you know, he casts out demons, which must mean he's in league with the demons. And Jesus is like, what kind of logic is that? How can the one who's casting out the demons be in league with the demons? That's a kingdom divided against himself. And then in verse 29, he says this, but how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. See, what Jesus is saying is that for the history of humanity, we have been under the oppression of this strong man, the devil, who is constantly at us, constantly tearing us down, constantly tempting and winning. But if you start seeing all of a sudden signs of the strong man's losing his authority, like demons start popping out of people and the effects of Satan start getting pushed aside, well, clearly it means 
Someone who is stronger has come and bound the strong man. Jesus is the stronger man who binds this strong man in the wilderness temptation and therefore the effects of that bound, dethroned Satan are on display within the gospel and within the church today. Now let's be clear, the final fatal blow is yet to be struck. It will not happen until the end of the gospels when Jesus comes to Calvary. Through his passion and his death and his resurrection, that will be the final blow, the fatal mortal wound that will be given to the devil that means he's finally beaten, finally done. And this is why in our liturgy, we will say in the communion prayers every day that in this celebration of the death and resurrection, we're remembering that he has trampled down hell and Satan under his feet. Just to be clear, defeated doesn't mean gone yet. This is why Revelation 12, 12 says that the devil as this mortally wounded beast is still raging around. Why is he raging? Revelation 12, 12, because he knows his time is short. He knows he's done for. And when the king returns, he will cast Satan finally into hell for eternity. But for now, he is a dethroned and defeated foe. And you know what's interesting is in the liturgy, we say that Jesus in his death and resurrection is trampling down Satan and hell under his feet which is a link back to Genesis chapter three. The, the prophecy in Genesis three, what God speaks to the serpent, the devil there after the fall from grace is he says, I will create enmity between the woman's offspring and your offspring. You shall bruise his heel and he shall crush your head. And, and, and that's talking about the fact that the devil will continue to attack humanity, right? Bruise the heel. But that one is coming, one offspring is coming who will ultimately crush Satan's head. And that's Jesus. But here's what's really cool. Is that in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, Paul takes the exact same phrasing from Genesis 3 and says instead that God will soon crush down, tread down Satan under your feet. Not just Jesus' feet, but your feet. That because we are in Christ. And he is a defeated and dethroned foe. We now, in Jesus' name, have the authority in his name to, as James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We have the power in Jesus' name to say those same words to the devil that Jesus says in verse 10. Be gone, Satan. I remember when I was... In seminary, one of our professors asked the question, what do you do, preachers, priests, as you go out into the world, and what, what do you do when, that Sunday when no one shows up at church? And he knew we were going into small settings, like northern places like I went to with like 30 people, and you get one snowstorm and no one shows up at church. And he said, you stand in the pulpit before you leave, empty church. You stand in the pulpit and you preach your sermon. 
because the devil will hear it and tremble. This is the power of the gospel on the lips of Jesus' followers. See, the problem is that the devil is constantly trying to convince us that this didn't happen. The devil still today, as this mortally wounded beast raging at us, is constantly trying to convince you and I that this whole wilderness temptation did not happen. He's trying to convince us that he's still on the throne. That when you get to a place of misery and challenge, you think, okay, really, maybe the devil does have all the authority and all the power. And I get it. It can be terrifying and it can be scary. But you know what drives me nuts in the life of the church? is every time the church rediscovers a belief in the personified reality of evil, every time the church sort of says, all right, now I think maybe we do really believe there is a devil out there. Do you know what the church starts doing? It starts, you know, licensing and training up exorcists. And, and, and don't get me wrong. This is important. There will be moments when you particularly may need, because of a particular oppression experience or something going on, where you may say, I need the professional who's authorized and trained to come in and deal with this. I mean, there's that moment in Matthew 17 where Jesus says this one only comes out with fasting and prayer. There's moments when you, yes, may need to come to the clergy and do that. Come and say, I need someone to help pray against the devil in this case. But 99% of the time, 99.9% of the time, when we feel the experience of the devil coming at us, we don't need a professional. We simply need to be a Christian. And speak those words against the devil. Be gone, Satan. This is the power that is given to the average Christian. What was it, Cowper, William Cowper, who once said, the weakest Christian on his knees is the most terrifying sight to the devil. The devil will try and convince us that this never happened. But it has And that's why every Lent we begin with this story. Because Lent is about standing against temptation. It's about treading down Satan under our feet. I like how the preacher, English preacher Smith Wigglesworth once wrote this. If you've read Smith Wigglesworth, like only he could write like this. He he, he says he awoke one night to the sense of, of evil in his bedroom. And he writes this, he says, I suddenly sat up in bed and I saw the devil. And I rubbed my eyes to be sure it was him. And I said, oh, it's only you. Nothing of consequence. And I laid my head back down. And suddenly an overwhelming sense of peace and love filled that room. And I had the most blessed sleep ever. First, first John chapter 4 says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Why does Lent begin with this wilderness temptation story of Jesus? Because Lent is about standing against temptation, about treading Satan under our feet. In this wilderness temptation story, we see Jesus decloak the devil. He's real, he's there, call him by his name. He decodes the devil. It's always trying to get you to stop trusting your father. And he dethrones him before our eyes. Be gone, Satan. In Martin Luther's 
wonderful words. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that word is the name Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.